everybody to Overdue Rentals, where we talk about films that maybe never got their fair shake back in the day, or maybe they were big award winners, but nobody seems to talk about them anymore. I'm Matthew Shuckman. And I'm Mike Reyes from CinemaBlind.com. And today we are going to be joined by Emil Hirsch, who's going to talk about his new film, Midnight in the Switchgrass, which comes out Friday, July 23rd, if you're listening to this before and or after. Make sure you check it out. But he's also here to talk about the overdue rental choice of the day. The 2008 version, live action version of Speed Racer. Finally, it all paid off. <laughs> oh, man. I, 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 you know, I mean, clearly I'm a fan of this film because I cannot find the words to say that I'm a fan of this film. I, I, I always, I, it was, it's been on the list since we started and wh- whether or not, let's say, let's say I never saw the film. I know Mike, that you were, all, you're, you, you've been a very big proponent of how much you thought this film was kind of uh, overlooked and, you know, really do its due, <laughs> if you could put it that way. Exactly. Uh, this is a film that really the, the internet has sort of come forward to claim over the past, ever since the film was first out. And it is something that definitely does still fall into the category of an overdue rental because at, while the internet it does claim it as a film that it loves, it's still, I think, something that the mainstream really hasn't been as exposed to as they should. Mm-hmm. And just a quick rundown, you know, 2008 yep. film from uh, the talented visionary Wachowski. The Wachowskis deserve the visionary label if anything, because of what, how they brought the Matrix into the world. But I still maintain, and I'm, I will go on record as saying this in our interview with Emil, because I'm sure he, he might agree with me. I think they've done some of their best work, if not their best work, after the Matrix. And, and yeah, and if, 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 no, if you don't know about it, Speed Racer is a live action version of a classic Japanese anime slash manga that you, you may have come across not knowing about it when you were a kid, you may have come across about it after, who knows, but this is their big live action version of it uh, in which Emil stars as Speed, Race, Speed Racer. Right, and the plot is centered around the Racer family and uh, their their orbit of, of people, which the, the fact that they have John Goodman and Susan Sarandon as Ma and Pop Speed, Mom and Pop Racer alone, right there, that's A+. plus. Matthew oh. Fox as Racer X, <laughs> and then Christina Ricci as Trixie. I'm actually not that big of a fan of Matthew Fox, but I think he did a really good job in the movie. Oh, he is fantastic as Racer X. And then a man that I believe is kind of overdue for a lot of praise, Roger Allen, playing the uh, evil RP, I think it was RP Royalton or the evil Royalton. Yeah. Roger Allen is someone that I have always, I latched onto early because the first time I saw him was in a stage play when I was studying abroad in London. Oh. It was a play called Democracy with Conal Hill, which is funny because the two of them later went on to be on a Game of Thrones together in, in a, a couple of like he, he Roger Allen had a minor role, but Conal Hill was Varys. So for those of you listening out there, uh, big name there. Yeah. And they were fantastic in this show about uh, Willy Brandt, one of the German chancellors that was embroiled in a huge scandal in the 80s. But that's, and, that's a discussion. That's a discussion for another time. Oh, yeah. No, no. This isn't overdue stage plays. This is overdue rentals where it is time to go Speed Racer Go with Mr. Emil Hurst. Let's bring him on in. 
Uh, but yeah, thank you for joining us at Overdue Rentals. It's, it's fantastic to have you here. Thank you for having me. You know, I got to ask just right outright though for, for Midnight in the Switchgrass because this was, you were starting production literally as lockdown was originally starting, right? Yeah. So on Midnight in the Switchgrass, we made it like five days before we shut down. It was crazy. And I was the one that sort of, I'd been following it while I was shooting Sun with Ivan Kavanaugh in um, Mississippi. And I was like, oh man. And I'd been a little bit of like a chicken little. I was like, mm. I think everything's going to shut down. And everyone was like, no, 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 no. And then it did. And I was like, whoa. They were like, whoa, this this just like paranoid guy was right. <laughs> so then we, uh, we tried to, sh- we shut down. We didn't even know if the movie, we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know if we we're going to finish the movie. We didn't know what the, what the world was going to happen. Yeah. In July, we went back to Puerto Rico where we shot it to try to finish it. And there were COVID cases on set. So we had to shut down again. Jesus. Um, we didn't even shoot anything then. So it was like a two week trip where we didn't even, it was just shut down. And then uh, we went in September, we went to San Inez and we finished the movie there. So for first time director, like Randall was, it was like, he was kind of put through the, the the ringer a little bit i mean first on director of course but i mean he's been a producer for a long time and i know it's a different role and, and yeah but you know do you think how how did he handle it i guess how in your eyes based on that how, how do you think he handled it uh, you know he'd been a very successful producer for a while and he certainly made a ton of movies and a bunch of money so i think the responsibility of it he was it was like it came kind of natural for him yeah. he'd kind of He'd been in kind of command in a way for a while. Um, and I think it was good for him to flex his more artistic muscles. You know, I know he went to college at the school for performing arts. So he had that inner desire to do theater and act and and, and that kind of stuff. And he's a he's a naturally a very boisterous, big personality, kind of a showman hmm. in a way. This is a guy like when he, you know, he has like a whole hire, like a 30 piece marching band to like introduce him at the World Series of Poker. Like he's a character. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and he also has like crazy ADD where he's like doing 30 things at once. But I had an instinct that like he'd be able to direct. And I remember seeing him on set and instead of doing the 30 random things he always does at once, he was doing like 30 different things with like the sets and the costumes and the props and the camera. Like suddenly his ADD was like working in set mode. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, perfect. That's, that's right. But even, even like, like any film, Let's say, you know, we didn't even think there could be a pandemic, whatever it may be. There could be shutdowns, coming back to reshoots, you know, years later. You know, there, there are things that happen. Did this feel differently when you came back to it, though? I think uh, by the third time we came back, we, we all were more focused. We all wanted it more. In a way, it sort of bled over into some of the characters with, with Megan and I. And, mm. you know, it's like, the sense that we had been on the case for a while was a little bit more yeah. believable. You know, there was a kind of a little bit more of like a, a sense of determination, I think that kind of bled through there. Um, and we were all just really grateful to be there. You know, I mean, I think, I think the pandemic put a lot of things into perspective for people and we were just grateful to be out of our homes at all or doing anything. Well, Byron's also an interesting character, I think too, because I mean, a lot of times when it's the cop who's after somebody, you know, they have to, you feel like somebody's writing in a backstory about how 
there's something that happened in his past that makes it really wanted. Now, of course, he has his own family, and they they have that for Rebecca's character in a way. But it, it, Byron's not the typical cop character you see in, in films. Was it you know interesting kind of creating that, being able to create something different around that? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the some of the qualities I'd seen in other kind of cop characters on screen was a little bit more of like the atheistic, not chip on his shoulder, not believing in anything because yeah. the job beating him down and he's swigging his beer and his cigarette and he's like god ah, i don't know why i do this job i don't believe in anything anyway it's all bs yeah and so i think that the take that alan and randall and i um were thought was the most interesting was making him like a really religious guy making him someone that like their spirituality and the, the marriage that he's in and his family that's sort of like the fuel and she's sort of like the coach that pushes him forward and kind of props him up as he's exposed to these really awful heinous crimes i think that that was like a big that was like a big part of it um of a fresh take and and i having the spirituality be kind of straightforward mm. you know he's a religious guy and it's it's the movie doesn't really shy away from that and it kind of it is what it is and i almost found that to be uh something new that i hadn't really seen lately you know i feel like there's Anytime there's any kind of like religious stuff in anything, you know, like half of anyone will just like recoil and not want to go there or yeah. not want to address it. And I was like, you know, why don't we just go full on? And it is what it is. And people are different and we can just accept that people are different. Well, it also plays in a great contrast for, you know, what Peter puts as, as his beliefs in life for what he's actually doing. Yeah. And it's interesting because at a certain point you know peter does make some sort of religious references himself yeah and, and he's uh it's it's interesting because it's sort of it really does kind of become like a good versus evil movie in a way you know as far as character going from not the typical cop character you see though you did get to sport that cop mustache oh yeah i mean the mustache was never there was never a question that i was gonna grow, grow the mustache yeah <laughs> i think <laughs> Yeah, it's weird. I don't know why cops are associated with mustaches. I don't quite know why, but it just looked a little more right when I had it, you know? And I sort of like, it wasn't wasn't expressly delineated or anything like that. Yeah. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't know, like, the must, I think the, I think, no, I think that might have actually been in the script. Okay. Alan might have specified the mustache, and I think at a certain point it was going to be set in Texas and not Florida, so there was like a big kind of stetson kind of hat um and then when we moved to florida the stetson wasn't quite as appropriate but the mustache survived yeah the south is very good about cultivating mustaches all all, all throughout the region it's just the hat is, that you wear is really how you know a man that is from texas or yeah or, you're like where's your hat from bro <laughs> <laughs> well i mean you said it was originally supposed to be in texas because from what i understand this is supposed to be based on the crime specifically of somebody from who committed them in Texas, right? Well, Alan was asked this in a Q&A recently in Tampa, and he kind of gave a little bit of a cryptic answer mm -hmm. where he never named the real, like the real killer that it's based on as a sole one because he said it was a little bit of a composite. And if he were to say it was specifically this or that, then there's a certain amount of responsibility to that story and to those people to kind of expressly tell that story. Yeah. So he... He said he was more inspired by these true events, but there were a couple different ones. And then he kind of 
created his own thing out of that. So it wasn't, it's not like a biopic in that sense where it's like based on a true story, like, you know, uh, Alpha Dog, you know, was based on a very specific true story, even though they, they made fictitious names uh, just due to rights issues. Yeah, that's always interesting when you see the the biopic versus, you know, the ripped from the headlines movie, because it's the same yeah. sort of thing that Law and Order likes to do, where they won't mention any names or any particulars, but you can tell, oh, this there was an episode last season where, oh, yeah, that's totally a Harvey Weinstein analog or oh, a Jeffrey gosh. Epstein episode. Like, you can tell which ones are which, but yeah. they don't have to mention any of they don't have names. the same, like they don't owe they're not judged on the same meter in that sense because it's not they're not calling the character those names yeah yeah and i i always find that interesting because you'll have your your true crime aficionados will always be able to peg those stories out but it does in a sense free you because i mean look at how many movies they made about ted bundy and not only are people going to criticize the facts involved in the case but they're going to criticize how they portray him and then eventually just the fact that they're making so many movies about Ted Bundy. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a few positives, but there are many drawbacks and negatives to doing that. I agree. It's also like for these for as big as these people have become, they're almost characters, even though they're real people. We now, we now see them through the, the lens of media. Uh, and I'm, I'm talking about fictional media almost. And mm. it just feels like we've, we've taken away kind of even their real menacing nature, because we think of them as the villain compared to Darth Vader almost, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely see, I definitely see that. Like with Man, like with Manson or something like that, I especially. I was just about to mention that because, you know, obviously I, I wanted to touch upon your experience at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But yeah, like you look at Charles Manson and there are so many different, he, the man's become a meme. I know you almost couldn't make a Manson biopic now. Yeah. Have it like you could and it would be good, but it's still like one of many. Yeah. Like uh, maybe a decade ago. I remember uh, there was a site that used to crank out memes like there was no tomorrow. And someone took tape of Manson, like Manson's gibberish, and then someone jazz scatting and threw it together. And I I am, it's something where like on an internet level, it's like, oh, that's funny. But then when you peel it back a bit, it's like, Okay, I just laughed at Charles Manson. What's wrong with me? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that story is so crazy, so fascinating, so weird. There's so many weird layers to it. And they still don't really exactly know, you know, like what was even going on. Well, it's, just, it's, just, it's just also, I, mean, I had a discussion about this with my brother, uh, like not too long ago too, because, you know, we weren't alive during that time, but, you know, just being able for people to take that idea is like, it was an actual, there was a, a day and a date that somebody can point to saying, this was a sea change. This, the counterculture killed and now we can't have it. And that all of a sudden made the world kind of turn a page. Yeah, it's, it's like the end of an era yeah. for sure. I mean, I was, I recently saw the Night Stalker on Netflix. That was crazy as well yeah i mean these true these true crimes documentaries are harrowing i mean the night that that night stalker thing is insane yeah and then there was another one i forget the name of it off the top of my head but it was about this guy who murdered his family and then like covered it up as like a missing persons report and then eventually you found out that he had smothered them and then buried them in an oil drum you're talking about you're talking about chris um oh, yeah God. I can't even remember. That's the case I'm talking it's brand about. New. It's just, it just happened. I can't even remember his name now. That's not a bad thing. 
Yeah, let's move yeah. on to happier things, I think. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, you know, it's, 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 again, it's great having you here to talk about Midnight Switchgrass, but we also, here at Overdue Rentals, we'd like to talk about films that people may have forgotten about that were massive in the one time back in the day or, or things that, you know, maybe didn't get their correct due when they first came out. And I know Mike is a massive, massive fan of Speed Racer, and he wants to kind of bring it back to the light for a lot of people. We, because as you said, you know, this is a sort of a joint effort here, but oh, no, yeah, I, 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 know, but I will not shy. I will not be shy in stating that I am just, since day, since day one, I saw that first trailer and I was sold. And then to just kind of follow along with this sort of small reappraisal, well, not small, but with this reappraisal of Speed Racer through over a decade, I mean, it's crazy because you are looking back at when this movie opened, you guys were literally the week after Iron Man, like one week. And I I guess that's a good place to start. Uh, Do you think that if you opened at any other point in 2008, like maybe even before, you might have had a better shot at at making a dent? Because 2008 was a hell of a year for movies. Uh, You know, I don't know. I almost feel like, I don't know if the weekend would have mattered because I think for like cinephiles and an audience in 2021, it's awesome. But I feel like back then, like even if you look at the criticism of the movie from all the prominent critics, like nobody got it. I mean, people were like the, the, the very things that the movie was is praised for now were like the ammo that they used to tear it down at the time critically. So I feel maybe like people just weren't really ready for it. And the movie also employed a, a, a use of green screen technology that while it had been done before, it hadn't quite been done on that level ever before um, in such a specific way. So it was really like the first time a lot of people were seeing this kind of a, a movie. And to a degree, they, were, they, 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 they had a hard time kind of accepting that. And I also think, too, one of the reasons why, you know, maybe it didn't open is because there was such a strong association with kind of like dark, violent, rated R-ness that sort of radiated from the Wachowskis through V for Vendetta, which they had their name on. Yeah. So when people saw something about Matrix, but it was a more colorful thing, I think that they had a they, were, they had a really hard time like accepting that. You know, they were so they had been so conditioned to just think of them in that way. Um, but it's been pretty wild. I think it's it, it's kind of a sweet. It's like it's kind of cool and sweet that the movie, in a way, has sort of followed the trajectory uh, of the original cartoon, which. You know, it did well, but I think it was like two seasons or something. And then it kind of, for a cartoon that only had two seasons, it became unbelievably zeitgeisty, Hmm. um, unbelievably relevant to generations of people. And it's, they replayed it on Cartoon Network. I used to watch it growing up. Um, So the movie, you know, even though they only made one of them, it is kind of fitting that it's, it's become this sort of retro cool you get a discover it movie later on kind of like the cartoon was it sort of falls in line with with that tradition in a way which i think is kind of cool oh it absolutely is and now that you mention it uh it is just amazing that this was made during 
the early days of like the virtual backlot age because you know everybody remembers Sin City did the same thing, uh, Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow pioneered it, and then you compare those films, like even Sin City and just its beautiful technical glory, you compare that to this, this was a huge step up because it's hyper colorful and just this hyper retro future reality of like 50, 60 sort of living. Like you could have made a Jetsons yeah. movie with this same sort of technique. Oh yeah, I mean, I, and the, the thoroughness on the technical side that the Wachowskis had I like I don't think 10 years from now we'll watch Speed Racer and be like, oh, those effects look dated. Like I, I think that they made it kind of bulletproof in yeah. that way. And, I don't think that's gonna happen. And that's amazing considering as much as I love the Matrix, watching the first one again, it you can it does still it shows yeah, some of tell. its wear. Yeah. And that's yeah, you can tell. It's no one's even fault. even two and three, yeah. even Burly Brawl. Yeah, especially Burly Brawl, Burly Brawl. Is, is, is super noticeable. And I love I love that yeah. sequence though, but it's just a fact of technology. Yeah, like if you're you're lucky if you can land something like a Jurassic Park where you know it looks great from the first right out the gate, but you know that's it just happens. Yeah, but even even me on rewatching it to, to prepare for today, I'm thinking to myself, look, look, I know it's it's you know what what now? What were we about thirteen years ago almost now? Yeah, and you know it still felt take away the whole green screen, green screen aspect of, of, of how well they pulled all that off. Like even when people were trying to do stylistic things like Angley with Hulk, you know, it worked visually, but it didn't, it didn't fit this. Every piece fit in Speed Racer, what they were actually trying to present. It's a living, breathing anime. And that's literally what I walked out of this movie saying, because like opening weekend, my brother and I were there. We went to Atlantic City to go to the IMAX at Tropicana because this was also the time where IMAX was a huge deal. Like it wasn't in every movie theater, but they were starting to slowly roll more movies out. And this just played to every inch of that screen. I remember I saw it in IMAX and Marina Del Rey and was just like blown away. I was like, whoa, especially it was kind of especially shocking just because like when we shot it, you know, it's like. I'm looking at green screen the whole time, imagining these worlds and then seeing them actually created and look as good as they did. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Um, and even the score by Michael Giancino is great. I mean, he did such a good job. Even, even how we took the original Speed Racer theme and like created this like swelling, really moving score. I mean, it was like, he crushed it. He really did. What, what, what were the what were the, the pieces that were given to you to kind of imagine what you're going to see? Was it literally just like, hey, it's going to look like the original cartoon, or they actually had drawings built up of what this would look oh, like? Oh, they would done? show me a lot of the pre the the art in the previous and stuff. Yeah, they would show me a lot of that, like pieces of the art. It was just it was amazing because I was like, I mean, they must have been spending a fortune on all this art, just seeing so much of it. Just like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. And it's a just just imagining like the like with childish delight, like the races and, and the Casa Cristo rally and the Grand Prix and Thunderhead and what all those were gonna look like. It was pretty exciting. It really was. It was it was fun. It was a, a real sense of play, you know? It was a little nerve-wracking when the chimpanzee was around. Chimpanzees, even adolescent ones are super unpredictable yeah. um you got to be extremely careful they're very cute but they're they'll rip your face off 
I don't know. You know, that, that was, that was pretty wild. I don't, I almost don't know if they would do that these days. They would probably just get like a CG chimpanzee. Yeah. Oh yeah. Terry notary running around then put something on top of them. Yeah. I mean, given how good a lot of the, like, if you look at like life of pie, you know, a CG chimpanzee would probably be a lot easier. Now there was some pretty heavy competition for this role from what I was reading in my research. Like there was Joseph Gordon Levitt was mentioned Shia LaBeouf, Zach Efron, and I'm sure countless others that, you know, we still don't know about. Uh, how dogged were you, like, how determined were you to land the lead in Speed Racer? You know, they, I had just finished shooting Into the Wild, and Matrix was one of my favorite movies, so I was super excited to get a chance to audition for the movie. And I went in, and I was, I knew that the Wachowskis, um, you know, they really wanted whoever played it to be super prepared hmm. and um you know i just did it a few times and then they, they would come in and i would do it and they would give me a bunch of notes and i would do it again and it was like two or three auditions um and i just had a just a you know i really wanted to do it i wanted to be there and i think that they sensed that they're really just good people really good people really talented artists and i think that they ultimately wanted someone that just wanted to be there and I looked and acted the part to you know the 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 best of what they were seeing I guess I mean I think that they had auditioned like a ton I think it was like everybody went in for it I think it, they probably saw like every friggin actor in Hollywood for that one I don't think it was like well we read five people I think they saw like everybody <laughs> well it is hard to land that that character just because I mean looking back at your performance everything from the cut of the jackets to just the hairstyles like you have i cannot think of anyone else playing speed racer because there's an earnestness and there's this yeah. image to the character that if you go too far either way it's either oh shucks you know i'm i'm very melodramatic or oh wow i'm like the original anime where yeah. you're just talking really fast da, 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 da. and it's like there's just this beautiful nuance to how you and the wachowskis made speed into a person and then everyone yeah. else just falls right in line with that. Yeah, and it's interesting too because they really, they really wanted, they really like kind of subdued, kind of protagonists. Like even if you look at Matrix, Keanu is very subdued in that movie for the most part. Yeah. Um, and it's just ironic, like a character named Speed is, is sort of seems as kind of zen, you know, <laughs> as as he as as he does in certain scenes. You know, I mean, Speed can get a little bit agitated, but a lot of the times he's pretty serene. Oh yeah, I mean, especially you just look at how the racer family looks at racing. And I don't know how many other movies could get away with a finale like this because you're in the middle of this final race, but you're cutting back to all this other stuff from the beginning, like, you know, race talking about racing means everything to me. His mother's point of view, his father's point of view, like anyone else that knows, doesn't know what they're doing does that, you bungle that ending, but there's just this propulsion to it that it, it's so beautiful that I, I, it just moves me every time I watch it because the Wachowskis just understand, I guess, that childlike wonder, no matter what they're yeah. doing, they understand that to how to hone in on that blockbuster physicality and storytelling. Yeah, yeah. and in, in, fusing the championship and the triumph with the um, emotional 
kind of reckoning that the movie's kind of been building towards and they really yeah they really did kind of know how to coalesce those elements for a maximum payoff finale yeah it's like a blowout at the end you're just like any any new news on the possibility of, of us getting another one you know i don't i don't know i think that that would be uh hard to imagine but because it's been so long yeah. i don't know i don't know i feel like the wachowskis had it built in to where no one can ever make it again if they don't want to too i think i think that they got like a sweet deal where not only did they make it but like warner brothers can just never make it again <laughs> i think that they had something like that um if anyone could it'd be them it'd be funny though if they were like yeah i mean they listen they just made another matrix <laughs> you know it would be funny to get a call like if they wanted to do it i think it would be interesting speed racer 2 if they were to make it would be interesting just because you'd see speed 12 13 years later you know like not more of a man as opposed to boy it yeah. would be kind of like a slightly it would be a slightly different movie but i think it would be interesting i don't know though i think because the movie I don't know if Warner Brothers, like, I think the movie lost so much money when it first came out. I don't know if Warner Brothers, like, cult movie or not. Yeah. I don't know mm. if they'd be down to, like, like risk another $100 million or something, you know? With in, 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 the, in the Snyderverse world now, who the hell knows what's going to happen? And plus, there's still a campaign to just get the first movie on 4K Blu-ray. Yeah. Like literally yeah. there is a Twitter, there is a Twitter handle that says is speed racer on 4k yet. And like every day they'll say something like, no, no, no. I wonder why not. Yeah. Especially because this would be one of those movies that you need in 4k. I mean, it still looks gorgeous in just a regular Blu-ray transfer because again, the Wachowskis know what they're doing. I honestly, I would not rule out a sequel to speed racer just because as the movie gains more momentum throughout the years i think it will have to hit like a critical mass mm. where it's like people are just demanding it and that's when i think the wachowskis would be like okay maybe <laughs> you know but then they'd have to convince warner brothers or you know who knows i don't know or maybe they want it to be a one-off i know that they had a trilogy plan though right. i know that it was like already like I think a lot of it was laid out. They never, they didn't tell me exactly, but I think it's like all there. Ah, I was just going to ask if you knew like any details you could share. Cause there was, I mean, I think that they had like a script written. Cause you were saying that uh, like on the 10th anniversary, you would come out on Twitter and said, yeah, there's a script. Let's go. No, there is. There's no, there's no way the Wachowskis would have let Speed Racer come out without having the sequel ready. There's no way. No, they learned their lesson with, they probably learned their lesson with Matrix. Yeah. Oh, man, it's, it's just talking about this, it makes me happy to talk about this movie, but then it also kind of makes me angry because. It, I know when you think it, about all the lame <laughs> movies that have sequels, you're just like, oh. I mean, okay, we've got nine Fast and Furious movies. And as much as I, I enjoy them to varying degrees between the car physics and the family angle, and now Dom's brother comes back in like a, a Racer X sort of capacity. You mean to tell me that we can't do another Speed Racer? Within the world of, of Speed Racer 2, like you can just imagine the crazy stuff that they would probably still do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Within that visual world, like even, I mean, there's so much different, so many different things. 
it's just it's untethered to reality in this beautiful way that racetracks don't work like that cars don't work like that <laughs> but it works because everyone believes it everybody commits to it no matter who it is on that set like there is nobody you can point to in that entire cast and say they didn't get it like everybody got it and it, was there sort of a, a was there any sort of exercise that helped with that or was it just working together with those actors that kind of helped ground that I think the Wachowskis just, they really knew who they wanted in every single role. Mm. And they were so meticulous how they do everything. And they thought it through to a T. They really were just artists in complete command of their craft on that. And it was very impressive, you know, just seeing that level of, I don't, I hadn't seen that level of meticulousness before working with with people, any director before that, that they were like the most ever. And probably I think since too, like the most meticulous I've ever seen. And that's on everything too, like including like the performances and the script? Everything, every single element Mm. from wardrobe to hair, makeup, to, to takes, to scenes, to camera movements, everything. Like, and the, to have that kind of patience that they had is hard. You know, you have to really be patient and confident, especially when you're on a like huge movie set like that, where essentially the, the cash register is just being emptied all day. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like to have the patience to just get it exactly right. And if it's not right that day, you take a day off and you come back the next, I mean, it's just, it's really, it's uh takes guts yeah uh 128 million in 2008 money is is you know that's no small feat and yeah yeah i mean i I, this is one of the movies that convinced me as much as i love matrix i think the wachowskis have done their best work after the matrix because speed racer cloud atlas i'll even defend jupiter ascending because i think it's it's a lot of fun that's a run of movies that i just look back on and i'm constantly glad that they exist because they're yeah. harder and harder to make now like yeah if it and wasn't i can't wait for a new matrix yes oh especially with the there are so many wild rumors floating around that thing that i uh, i can't wait i'm so excited <laughs> i'm so excited i'm i'm the one person that's always like i don't not for everybody but like i'm very much that whole you know not that it doesn't have to be, but like the first movie was the best movie. Like I'm, I, I'm still like the Bound fan. I'm still like the shallow grave Danny Boyle fan. No matter how great things come out after, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Top those. I totally, I, I totally get that. By the way, and Bound is awesome too. So that's understandable. Yeah, yeah. No, but just it, it, you literally could just watch all of these films together, and you just see these artists stepping, even making even greater strides in their craft. Yeah, where... I'm really excited to see what they do next. I, I, I'm not sure if they both made the new Matrix together. I'm not sure that that happened. I think it's only Lana. Yeah. It might just be Lana. Okay, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, because I think Lily is uh, semi-retired from filmmaking. Uh, feel free to correct me or come on our show. I don't know. I, I saw something a year or two ago, or maybe she, she was uh, show running something, uh, I think, an Amazon comedy show. 
Oh, well, I would I think definitely but, exciting. I don't know, but maybe she's working on the script for Speed Racer 2. <laughs> One can only hope. I don't care how long it's been. <laughs> I'll write it. Jeez. Mike's already written it, actually. He just doesn't want to admit it yet. Yeah, here it is. <laughs> as much as I love to sit and actually talk about Speed Racer the whole day as well, I, I have a quick question for you, if it's all right, because one of my favorite performances of yours is Prince Avalanche. Mm. And I don't know if I'm misreading something. And this is why I always, I always wanted to ask you, I never got the chance, because every time I've seen you is either like press conference wise and not, not, I never had the chance to sit one-on-one with you. It, and it's coming from somebody from a family who has a family members who do uh, exhibit on the autistic spectrum. I always thought that performance, you were trying to put somebody on the spectrum on screen and you did it. And if that was the case, it was so well done because it wasn't trying to be trying to be obvious about it you know what i mean and i don't know if, I, if that's what you were going for but that's how i always felt and i'm wondering if that's what you were going for well according to david gordon green i i kind of just played myself hmm. so i don't know i i don't think uh, so i mean i i, no, I don't disagree I, with him there <laughs> emil emil no, nobody I, knows I, you I, better you know, than he I does mean, the character the character he definitely had some some gaps in his thinking i never went to the point of like any this way or that way i sort of just like Play the scenes as they were written and as I imagined them. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to go so far as to be like, oh, I played it like autistic or something like that because I just didn't do that. Yeah, I think, you know, he was, in certain sense, a little bit of a simpleton. But I don't think that I think that that's half of that is him being really immature. Yeah, you know, this is a guy where he, he in Prince Avalanche, he's very innocent but also kind of sleazy. Yeah. But he's also like a bit of a young brat in the sense that like he knows he's being a dumbass in a way and he's okay with it. So it's like like a lot of the stuff he says that's kind of goofy or dumb like he there's a little bit of it where he's like kind of trying to annoy uh Rudd, you know. Some some it's like sometimes when someone says something like really dumb kind of to annoy the other person a little bit there was so there's a little bit of that going on too where he knows that rudd is this goody two-shoes kind of stick up his ass dude yeah so he's kind of just constantly kind of you know trying to annoy him and if the dumber he seems he knows he's going to annoy him even more so <laughs> there was a little bit of that going on too well that, thank you for, for helping help me clear that up because i've always that's something i always wondered about and then of course uh as I mentioned earlier, I felt like it would be wrong not to try and jump into the fact that you got to work with Quentin Tarantino on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And yeah. that is just, again, you've got the Wachowskis, you've got Tarantino on the resume. That's like wild. That has to be a bank of wild stories from set. And I was wondering, uh, do you, A, do you have any good stories from working with Quentin and his direction process? And B, are there any scenes of yours that were cut that you're looking forward to maybe seeing reinstated because not only is there a whole novelization that sort of retells the movie, but there's always been this talk about a four hour cut that Tarantino yeah. might do for Netflix. Well, working with Quentin was definitely one of the most exciting experiences uh, of my career. I could never treat him like a normal guy. I was too starstruck. I was always way too starstruck and nervous around him. I just couldn't do it. I was like, ah, just, just, just treat him like a normal dude and just be relaxed. Just, he's Tarantino. I just couldn't do it. I tried and I just couldn't do it. 
um, I was just too excited to work with him. I've been such a big fan of his movies for so long. And working with him, he's so specific and, you know, he's, he wrote it and he knows every movie ever. He's just the biggest encyclopedic dude about movies. Everyone knows that. Um, and it was cool. One day we shot um, a scene at um, a Mexican restaurant. Uh, I can't remember the name of it now, but we, we shot um, there and uh, there was no lines in the script for me when I showed up. It was just like, I'm sitting at a table. Uh, we're all sitting there um, with Sharon. It was like the night of the, the, the murders that night. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, well, no dialogue for me today. Okay, so well, whatever. So, you know, community effort here. And then I get there and Quentin goes, okay, I'm going to tell you this story now. Uh, and then uh, just listen to me now. I'm going to tell you the story. And then in the scene, I want you to repeat what I just told you. So he goes on like a two or three minute story about how J.C. Bring explained how he used to get paid a lot of money for cutting movie stars hair and how he would cut Steve McQueen's hair where, you know, he would he would Steve McQueen would fly him out. And Jay had a thing where he gets paid every day, but he never cuts hair and travels on the same day. So he would fly out, you know, then the next day cut the hair, party all night, and then the day after that, fly back, and he would get paid for three days, and he would, like, get these insane fees, and he would, you know, be going on set with McQueen and everything, and uh, it was cool, and Quentin had me do this three-minute monologue, like, half of the day, and uh, it was fun, because it was like, I was doing a Tarantino monologue, but it wasn't even written, it was like me just trying to tell the story the way that he told it, um, and he was like going each take, like refining the story each time. And like, he was so hyper uh, aware of every moment. We, we had so much fun together doing that. It was really cool. And I'd never done like a monologue. It was like a long monologue like that. I mean, and it was so fresh because it was just me hearing it and repeating it back. You know, there was something to it that I, even if he had given me like three pages of dialogue, I don't think it would have been quite as as cool as we did it. And they, they use a little piece of it in the movie. Obviously the movie, they had to cut a lot of scenes. There's a bunch of scenes with Margot and I, a bunch of scenes with Tim Roth, um, who was my butler, which was super wild. Um, so much fun getting to work with Roth. And, you know, Quentin just creates a family environment and a real love of movies. And everyone that's on that set is so excited to be there, no matter what part of the crew they're on doesn't matter it's like as good as movie making gets to be on on his on his sets because you're just you know you're going to be a part of something that's really exciting and the the person helming it is is happy to be there and is really passionate about what they're doing and it's a it's a wonderful feeling and and even on a movie like that where I'm you know more of a supporting role it's like in Quentin's films like you can have one line and it's awesome, you know, yeah. just the way it is. Wow. I literally like it. Even Tarantino stories are just good to listen to. And just that, that aura that he exudes around people and just the, 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 the chemistry that people have with him. Like if it's a good story or, or a bad story, it's always an interesting story to listen to. Oh yeah. He's funny. He is, he is, laugh out loud i mean he he would always make me laugh 
he would he told me this one story about there was a writer that was he he, he won all these awards as a writer but he was one of the kids that when tarantino used to work in the video store he they called this guy little quentin they were like oh this guy's like little quentin little quentin because he was like this young nerdy kid who like knew all the movies and they were like oh he's like little quentin little quentin and i think um i think year a few years later tarantino he saw one of this guy's movies and the guy had just won like a huge writing award or something and and, and quentin told me he goes i remember walking out of the theater and thinking to myself it's a really good thing that I, I I made something of myself because if I was if I hadn't if I hadn't done anything, and and everyone told me that little Quentin had just won like the biggest award ever, he goes I, I might jump off of the building. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was just such a funny idea. It's just the fact that the guy's name was Little Quentin. It's like, did you hear about Little Quentin just won that award? Like I don't know, it's just a very funny. He really made me laugh with that story. Well, you know, you you just you said you know you were almost. Not, 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 not. You were anxious about meeting Quentin and working with him because you held him in such high regard. Does it ever feel like that? That's a feeling that will go away or can go away. I mean, like even before that, you're 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 working on Sean Penn's film sitting next to Hal Holbrook. You know, yeah. Eventually, it's got to like subside, right? Not really. Mm. No, I don't think it does. When you do it right, it stays fresh like that. That at least that's yeah. how I see it. I know it's just. You just can't. I don't know. I mean, maybe you can. Maybe you can just like sort of get chill eventually, but I don't know. I don't think I'd ever be able to just like casually chat with Quentin and just be like, hey, man, like, oh, yeah. You know, I just can't. No, oh, it feeds the moment. Like, just this yeah. here, like being in this line of work, I've always thought, I don't think I'm, I'm ever going to chill out just for the sheer fact that I like talking to people, but especially yeah. talking to you or all, any of the other guests that we've had or anyone else that we've talked to in our careers. It's just, it's fun to be able to just make a, make a living out of talking with people. Yeah. It, 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 I, I feel, I feel super lucky every day to, to got to be able to do what I've done for so long and continue to do it. And it's a, it's not an easy business to work in at all, you know, so I'm grateful to be able to work at all. Thank you for so much for being here to talk to us about it and uh, for your time. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Mr. Emil Hirsch. Thank you again for joining us. Fantastic to have him here to talk about both films. Uh, you know, and again, yeah. Like, and we, we, got, we got a bonus out of him with that Tarantino story. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, we, you know, we, 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 we threw a lot at him at the, at the end of the day, I guess, but you know, this was, in an essence, though, majorly meant to be, you know, getting to that whole spirit. Again, you, we, when we were talking to him, I had said how you were such a big fan, and like, because that's the point. Like, again, doesn't we're here in this together, but I know how much of a fan you are of this film. So I, I, really, wanted, I really wanted to make sure that, you know, you gave the due you wanted it to have. I guess this, is, this might be my singing detective episode. I don't know. <laughs> Quite possibly. I don't Which know. I think we've had this discussion, thing. but I don't think you mentioned Speed Racer as your favorite film. Not my favorite film of all time, but it's one of my favorites. Yeah. I just, I, I, I'm still in awe, no matter how many times I watch it, of how the Wachowskis literally did turn in a living, breathing anime. And as you had mentioned before, compare this to Ang Lee's Hulk. Ang Lee definitely got comic panels, and I don't know if the world was ready for that. Or yeah. if their kids would love it. But the way that he used it, I thought was very interesting. 
No, he, he got done what he needed to get done. I just yeah. don't think there's something about it that felt like it didn't completely find its way to meshing with whether it was what was being shown on screen to how audiences reacted to it, to yeah. how he really wanted it. Because it, it worked, but I don't think, I don't think that works without being trying to be, I'll use the word, I'll use the term hammy in this case. Yeah. Like I, the movie was very serious and it didn't, it, didn't, it didn't really meld that well. Now, even if you don't like Speed Racer or don't think anything of it other than just being flashy, I, it came across as a much more completed work in that sense. Uh, you know, like the even- The Wachowskis never compromise. Yeah, well, it's, it's one of these things, like even, even if a movie has great special effects, let's say, but you can see like, well, even if you don't know or know like something's not real, sometimes a lot of it could just feel not fake, but it feels like it's just, it's just wrong. It doesn't belong. It's strange. It's alien to the picture. Yeah, because the- It does not have that at all. It really doesn't. No, no, but I, you, no matter how dated I said the Matrix effects were, and no matter what, no matter what phase you look at the Wachowskis in their career, they believe in the story that they're telling. They believe in the effects that they're using. Yeah. They're using them as kind of toys versus tools. Like a tool, you, you, you can build things with the tool. It's very utilitarian. It helps you get the job done. Yeah. But they see this as a toy and they see this world as a playground. And yeah. that sort of excitement permeates every frame of this. And everyone just went all in on it right down to, and I love that Emil brought this up, the Michael Giacchino score for this is one of his best. Well, you know what I think is funny that we didn't bring up? Well, he, it was brought up, but I, didn't, I wanted to follow up with it. And then, you know, it actually just, it just ended up falling by the wayside because, you know, Emil had mentioned about how, you know, people heard it's from the Wachowskis and, and I'll be honest with you, I'm definitely one of those people that always called them the Wachowskis. Uh, and I know, I know, I know apparently it's supposed to be Wachowski. I, I get it. But you know how people, you know, it's like, oh, they're the guys that make those dark or those are the people who make those dark, uh, yeah. gritty R-rated films or film at the time, two films at the time, I guess. Um, Cause I'll consider the, the Matrix trilogy as one film. Um, oh yeah, true. true the and Matrix. it's like, here's this big colorful thing. Like, what are they doing? But in the same breath, even though, because I went back, because it was weird to me, because I went back and I watched the original trailer, because I don't remember how, thinking what I saw at the time, but in my mind, I don't remember the idea that, I mean, yes, it does say from the Wachowskis in the trailer, but that's it. It doesn't say like from the people watching The Matrix and all this other stuff. Oh, because their names were just, their names were the selling point at that but point. But no, no, but what I'm, what I'm saying is though, I don't feel like it was that, it was that played up. I hardly remembered that it was even their film until people kept bringing it up to me. Until you keep mentioning it's their film. Somehow in my mind, don't ask me how this is. At some point in the last few years, in my mind, McGee made that movie. And I don't- I think he was up for it at one point. But I just think the point is like, it actually doesn't feel like they played up the Wachowskis as much as people may have thought they did, or maybe they should have. I think it was less mentioned than, again, I can't even remember now, but it, I don't tie the two together in my yeah. mind. Yeah. I just remember seeing those trailers and absolutely being blown away because I, Speed Racer was something I knew from my mom. My mom watched Speed mm. Racer as a kid. So I had known some of the original anime, but then 
seeing this this big colorful hyperkinetic world and in the time where the virtual backlot was getting off the ground yeah i i actually kind of miss the virtual backlot films because like sin city did it beautifully i still yeah. love sky captain i know sky captain has issues but i still love it but i i still think sky captain got overshadowed with the whole Lawrence olivier thing you know yeah over everything else. Like, that was what people were going to focus on no matter what at the end of the day and i hardly remember that movie i really actually remember don't liking it i can't remember it that well but I, that was the big thing that sticks in my mind from that movie yeah but this was i i really want to get the wachowskis on this show because if we don't get them for cloud atlas i'll talk to them for jupiter ascending but i think cloud atlas would be the better film to talk to them about um but yeah, just Speed Racer is something that I want the 4K, at the, at the very least, I want the 4K disc. And if the Wachowskis do have a script, I think we should at least get a comic book. <laughs> well, I mean, who knows? Like you said, you know, with the internet raging about it, with Matrix 4 coming out, yes. who knows what will happen? Um, you know, it, it, it's a... It's, uh, since Speed Racer was a hot commodity at one point or another, you know, I mean, before there was, a, before, you know, the movie was in development, like, since the 90s, right? Like, that's when the, that was when the rights were bought and people started trying to make yeah. it. It was, like, in oh, the yeah. 90s. At one point, you had Vince Vaughn attached to play Racer X. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff. So, like, it's not something that I think it's going to be. I'll tell you what it's going to be, and this is the sad part about it. It's going to be the film that, when what was this Warner was it Warner Brothers? Yes, yeah, it's a Warner Brothers. When movie. when when Warner realizes that they're about to lose the rights unless they make something, they'll jump on top of it and something will come out of it. Will it be a sequel? Who knows? Will well, it be, be imagining? Will it just be an animated film? Who knows? Well, that's even if they have the rights because from what Emil was saying, it sounds like that the Wachowskis might that's have right. the rights. Yeah, you said that they. Uh, I forgot about that, or I already forgot about that. <laughs> You know what? It's it's still a better reaction than what most people did for, had for Speed Racer in, in 2008. Yeah. Speed Racer is like the Rocketeer in the sense that it got lost in the shuffle because 2008, like 1991, was a big summer. Difference, though, difference, though, is that critics love the Rocketeer when it came out. They, they, they all followed it. Audiences didn't. I want to see... I, I, I don't, I'm not so sure about that. And I, I remember, I remember it being very highly reviewed. Again, this is just my memory from when it came out. You know, like seeing, because I went to see it in the theater. My, fa my family and I, we all went. And I remember getting good reviews. I could be wrong. No, you might be right. I, I just, well, I was a younger, a young kid then, and I, I got to see it on Disney Channel, but we'll save all that for the Rocketeer episode. I think that, I think the other issue with Speed Racer, with, you know, <laughs> Whether people, whether critics and or fans or moviegoers, whatever you want to call them, didn't understand necessarily. It wasn't necessarily that maybe they didn't, they could have been on board with the style, understanding where it came from. But I think a lot was left to them expecting you to know what Speed Racer was before you went in. So if you went in not knowing, the whole thing with them having a chimp and, and there's all this, it was just like, it, they, don't, they don't really explain it in the film. So people would be like, what the, what's going on? You know, and they just, they just let it freeze by. 
I don't even know you really need to explain Spritle and Chim Chim. It's just, I'm ex- this is what I think other Yeah. Some I mean, people I, you know you really have to be on board with that sort of whimsical anime realism and I guess maybe this hewed a little too close to the the line of reality that people couldn't totally buy into it. Well that's that's the other thing, you know, it's not a kids film but it also plays a little bit toward it because people are used to spy kids and stuff like that. So they're going to associate it just on visuals probably with that alone. And it's not really a children's movie, but there are parts of it that do still play to that and include everything with the chimp and, and the little brother. That's what that's you know trying to play to. Holy shit, Robert Rodriguez's Speed Racer would have been awesome as well. But, but... He kind of has his own sort of version of that with Alita Battle Angel. The fact that I'm sorry for people who don't who won't see this, but but I look at and Mike's queued up while I still ranting, ready to sway to speak that right into the mic. It's too good. It it was just something so beautiful that it's like I I I would never trade the Wachowskis Speed Racer. But if Robert Rodriguez could work with the Wachowskis, that would just be, that would be the Sunday on top of the Sunday and I would be full. <laughs> but still that's, the, again, he, he kind of has his own thing in that sort of league with Alita Battle Angel where it's like a, a fan favorite that did okay. Well, that one did okay at the box office. That one actually made money from what I think I saw where Speed Racer was like a loss. It was definitely a lot. Yeah, well, it, was, it was such a massive budget. Yeah, but at the same time, I am glad that there's one speed racer and they spent the money to do that one correctly. Then you cut that budget in half yeah. and you have a trilogy of mediocre films. I will say one last thing because I, I, I would have to disagree with Emil a little bit on the fact that you know the weekend box office being after Iron Man didn't make that big of a, a difference because... And why it does make a difference in my mind is because Iron Man was a game changer. And first weekend, while it did well, it wasn't until people start talking about how kind of over the top impressed they were with it. Yeah. That everybody was going back out. So that next weekend was a bigger weekend than Iron Man's first weekend. Yeah. Because the returns were, 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 were just changing. It was just, changing the game right there. So I, it, it definitely did have an effect on it. There's no way it could not have. Could you imagine how different Hollywood would be right now if Iron Man didn't hit? Yeah, 100%. We still would have gotten movies, but it wouldn't have been like it is now. Oh no, we, w- we wouldn't be in like a glut of the MCU where no. it's like 20 something movies and DC still can't get five right. Yeah, well, I mean, look, I mean, we're not going to go into it because it's a whole other discussion. Yeah, that's, you know what? We'll, but, we'll, we'll have to find some sort of comic book, un, well, another comic yeah. uh, un, uh, overdue rental, which, you know, I know yeah. we, we already have like, I think we have Rocketeer, we have Phantom, we could probably do The Shadow. Well, I mean, technically, technically, Tracy. We, we shouldn't talk, you know, I'm not going to mention it because I wanted to be surprised when they come up because. True, true, true. And just because we, we mentioned certain things here doesn't mean they're automatically going to be covered, but I still would like to do an episode on The Girl Next Door. No, no, I was going to say technically Dark Man, even though it's not, but 
that was the whole idea is like Sam Raimi gets to make that so he can make his comic book movie. So he creates yeah. his own hero. So I was going to say it's kind of one, but it's not one. Oh, I can't wait to talk dark man because that, oh, that is still one of the best teaser posters ever, ever. Well, that's that. I, I don't even remember seeing a trailer at the time. Cause you know, I saw that in the theater. Cause that was like, after I had already, you know, been introduced as a child to Evil Dead 2 and all this other stuff. And my father would go like, you know, the guy who made Evil Dead 2, he made this movie, let's go. And we went to go see it in the, <laughs> we went to go see it in the theater and I have enough goddamn clue what we were going into. I just remember <laughs> going to Ninja Turtles. Well, it's, you know what? These are discussions. Okay, okay, gotta okay, save, okay. Gotta save this these. is you a sampler this. pack, ladies and gentlemen. If you're just jumping on to overdue rentals right now, this is the sort of stuff that flies around the little rental shop we like to call the show because- that's that's just what it's all about. These are movies that you may not remember or you remember vaguely and get great memories out of. And that's all we really want out there is to get these movies a new life, to get them back on the shelves, to get them on your shelf. And Mike, where can everybody find us if they need to know more information? Oh, I'm so glad. I, I love when you ask that because it means he cares and he does as I do. And if you want to find Overdue Rentals, you can find us on Twitter at Rentals Overdue, on Facebook at Overdue Rentals, on Instagram at Overdue Rentals Show, still pending on that TikTok. However, if you want to send us recommendations, love letters, and you know, speed racer fan art, uh, you can send it to Overdue Rentals at gmail.com. And in the meantime, go and cross Speed Racer off your Overdue Rentals list. Mike, as always, it's been a pleasure. Ah, Matthew, I can't wait until we do it again. Till next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.